The human mind is a unique organism that is best suited to produce antibodies against new ideas. podcast. My name is Katie Dalebow and you are listening to Let It Out with me. Thank you so much for listening, for tuning in. I do this podcast every Wednesday. I interview creative people, fascinating people, funny people, people that I just want to have a really long conversation with and ask whatever I'm curious about. And that's what I'm doing this week with the person who you just heard a quote from, Dr. Christian Northrup, who is just a really cool, interesting, creative, like all of the things I said, she is all of those things and one human being. And we talk about relationships. We talk about sex and pleasure. And we talk about aging. And we talk about work and self-care and being a woman in the world. And she just has so much knowledge. It's really cool. She's actually one of my very first ever podcast guests, not the very first, but one of the first, Kate Northrup. You might know her. She wrote a book called Money, A Love Story, and she was maybe my like 10th or so guest on the podcast. This is actually her mother, who is a New York Times bestselling author. She's been on Oprah several times. Dr. Christian Northrup is really a powerhouse, I will say, and she's also the guest today. So I'm going to get right to that. I'm also recording this very late at night, so I'm very tired. It's going to be a short introduction. But I first, before I get to today's sponsors, which are wonderful and I'm so grateful for them, quickly, I just want to say again, I'm grateful for you guys. If you listened last week, I made a big announcement, or to me it's big. I'm moving and that feels really exciting and also nerve-wracking and scary, but mostly exciting but also really scary. Anyway, thank you guys so much for the nice messages and the feedback and the advice. Keep it coming. I love all of it and I'm I'm really excited about it. All right, on to the sponsors for today's episode. Shout out, thank you to Aptiv. Aptiv is really cool. And if you have been listening to the podcast, you've heard about Aptiv before, but here's the thing. Getting the motivation to work out It's a challenge just to do it sometimes. I don't know. I'll speak for myself. I just want to sit and snuggle in my bed most of the time. So when I actually get the motivation to work out and move my body, it feels really good. But I can't even be bothered to leave my house. But with Aptiv, you don't have to. You can just use this app that allows you to find the workout that you love, that fits you. Because there is such a huge variety of different types of workouts on Aptiv that you can do whatever you want in the comfort of your own home and you can press play on an amazing playlist that goes with the workout which is just really really cool and here's the thing about Aptiv it's great you can choose the duration of the workout you can also do like treadmill workouts you can do interval training or strength training indoor cycling elliptical yoga there are 150 plus new classes added every single month Aptiv, you are really cool. Thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast. If you listening want to try Aptiv, don't hesitate. 
Because here is the thing, you can get this free 30-day trial with Aptive by using the code Let It Out. Really cool. So try it out. The link is in the show notes, but just so you know how to spell it, it's aaptiv.com. And make sure you use the code Let It Out to let them know I sent you. All right. One more thing before you hear from Dr. Northrup. Freshbooks.com. Okay. We know FreshBooks. We love FreshBooks. But here's the thing. It's tax season. And you might be feeling disorganized. You might be feeling frustrated. But you know what? FreshBooks can help. It can at least help you for next year. It might be too late for this year. I don't know. It's getting close. But FreshBooks is amazing. I love it. I use it. You can send invoices. You can even personalize your colors and make it look nice. You can look super professional. Even if you, like me, secretly are not that professional, FreshBooks will make you look professional. And who doesn't want to look professional? Well, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to look professional aesthetically like in what you wear, but you definitely do in the way you send invoices and the way you send emails if you want to be taken seriously. So maybe try out FreshBooks. Just see, you know, you can do it for 30 days unrestricted, 30 days unrestricted trial by going to freshbooks.com slash let it out and entering let it out in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash let it out entering the code let it out in the how did you hear about us section. That lets them know that that I sent you. You're supporting the podcast. It's just very nice of you. So thank you so much, FreshBooks. I just want you to know that I love you. I really do. And I'm so glad that you exist and can make my finances be more organized. I'm also really glad you exist because you're helping out with the podcast. You're sponsoring the podcast. And I love doing the podcast. And the more amazing sponsors that also believe in it and think that it's worth doing, the more I can keep doing it and I can keep having good guests and interesting guests and fascinating guests and creative guests and smart guests like today's guest, Dr. Christian Northrup. So here she is and stay tuned for the end of the episode because I will give you the emoji for the episode. Well, welcome to the show, and I really want to hear about everything you're doing and working on, but my favorite way to begin is start in the present. So what is something that you've learned or realized or been pondering or excited and passionate about right now, like today or in the past week or month, whatever is the first thing that pops into your mind? Right now, this very moment, what's up for me is stepping back, more rest, more fun, more joy, and a reinstatement of daily affirmations because the the power of the voice to influence our inner self, our innate intuitive being, is stronger than it's ever been. So I'm very excited to begin once again a daily affirmation practice I'm also very excited about this meditation cushion that I found uh, that Patty Gift of Hay House uh, has. I can't remember the name, but it's spectacular. And let's see. I broke my toe on New Year's Eve, but I'm going to go tango dancing for the first time since the break tomorrow. I'm excited about that. Nice. Um, Also, 
learning new stuff about the role of mitochondria in health and how they thrive on healthy dietary fat. So I'm reviewing a book by Joe Mercola on that one. So there's just this, there's a sense of being at a new threshold and that my work right now is joy and play. And I'm actually having to hold myself back because I've got another book idea and it's really a good one. I almost see myself throwing it over my shoulder like a bomb in a really good way and saying, see ya. <laughs> you mean see you like... Yeah, like I'm going to... off to play. Like I, this is, these are my final words to you after all these years of creating a new path for women's health. Um, you know, here, you need to know, this is what you need to know. And it really has to do with the fact that we are held back as empaths, as women. Not all women are empaths, let's be clear. But we're often held back because we are so sensitive that we feel the feelings of others and then don't do our own work because we're trying to heal them with our own energy field. And we're really good at it. And I'm aware of being really good at it, but now having to focus on more, more joy for myself. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of exciting things. Yes, I'm very excited about it. I've got a lot of travel planned. I'm doing a yoga retreat in down in uh, the Dominican Republic with Katana Yoga. That's in the Bowery in New York, and I love what they do there. It's all about alignment. So I'm going down with an acupuncturist friend of mine. And it's new for me to be taking off so much time just for myself. I'm really, like so many people... I'm incredibly good at working. I'm yeah. really good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that's great, focusing on the feminine and the self-care, and I think that is a message that everyone needs to hear. So I'd love to go back a little bit about, you know, speaking of being so good at working, you've done so much, written so many amazing books, been a New York Times bestseller, and been a doctor. I'd love if we could kind of zoom the lens back a bit and talk about how you grew up with health and why and when you decided to become a doctor, and we'll start there. Okay. I grew up with parents who were very much into whole food, so imagine this was a while back. My father was a dentist. His brother and sister were medical doctors. My dad used to take yogurt that my mother made to his patients who were on antibiotics for oral surgery. This was before Dan and it was before any of that because he knew about the microbiome. We had an organic garden, we had a compost heap, and then we had uh, a couple of real key experiences when I was a child. A sister who died at six months, she wouldn't eat. My mother took antibiotics the entire pregnancy and I think that caused the baby to be so damaged that she died in a pool of her own vomit at the age of six months. This was before parents could hold their babies in the intensive care unit and uh, then when my brother was born he also wouldn't eat and a nurse told my mother uh, if I were you I would take him out of there out of here 
the doctors don't know what's going on. Now, today, in today's world, talk about regression, that would never be allowed to happen. My parents would have been reported to the Department of Human Services. And uh, anyway, they signed my brother out against medical advice, figuring that if he was going to die, he would die at home with the family around. And they fed him with a tube, NG tube, nasogastric tube. My dad knew how to put those down because of his training. And I remember holding up the test tube going into his stomach every hour on the hour. And then finally, when he was a year old, we found a woman doctor with the former Women's Medical Center in Philadelphia named Dr. Crump, and she was a pioneer in pediatric endoscopy, putting a fiber optic light down the esophagus. And she did that, and she said, this kid has an esophagus that's so eroded from that tube that we're gonna have to just take it out and see what happens. And she did, and after three days, he started to eat. And to this day, we don't know why. He's now in his 50s and very healthy. So I learned before going to medical school that that doctors don't have all the answers. And not only do they not have all the answers, they're often not very good at conveying that information in a healing way. And so I went to college. I was a went to Cleveland so that I could study the harp with my harp teacher, Alice Shalafu of the, of the uh, Cleveland Symphony, but I was a biology major because I just loved biology, and I thought I would be a biology teacher. But after I left college, I was, I was typing invoices at my boyfriend's father's office furniture plant, and I knew that wasn't going to work for me. I called my advisor from college, and he said, why don't you go to medical school? And by that time, I thought, okay, and I never thought I'd practice. I thought, I'll just get an MD degree. It's a better degree than a PhD, because by then I had interviewed several places to have a PhD in biology. So now my office is a 100-year-old schoolhouse, and I'm a biology teacher <laughs> <laughs> after all that, yeah. So... You did so much um, for the medical community, and you spe- ended up specializing in, in female health and becoming an OBGYN. When did you know that you wanted to specialize in female health and work with women? When I saw a baby born in medical school, I just was overwhelmed. I began to cry. I nearly fell to the floor weeping. I have never been so moved by anything. And then I interviewed interviewed 12 places in family medicine. (laughs) I have a good friend who just retired from family medicine. She says, if you go into family medicine, the question you always have to ask yourself is who in the family was sick in any possible way, mental, physical, emotional, for those of us who were interested in family medicine. Uh, and then I just, I met Kate's dad. He was my surgical intern in my maternal child health rotation at Dartmouth Medical School. And so I really met him in the OBGYN rotation. And uh, we had a very short time where we had to decide whether or not to get married because there's a thing called a match. And this is this giant program and you have to decide I mean, you have to apply to all these programs and you don't know where you're going to match. So 
we had a better chance of being together if we got married. So we got married the same week I graduated from med school, and we both decided to go to Boston. He planned to stay in Hanover, New Hampshire, but uh, I got accepted at a program in Boston, and so did he. So he did orthopedic surgery. I did OBGYN. And then we moved to Maine because this is where we wanted to be versus going every weekend to the place you really wanted to be. We thought, let's live where we really want to be. Mm. So it was, but it was emotional. It, it was, I cried when I saw a baby born. That was the deal. Mm. That's really cool. So yeah. from there, you know, you're a practicing physician and you're, you know, learning so much by experience. When did you go from being this practicing doctor and, you know, performing surgeries to learning all that you did about alternative methods and kind of getting back to the way that you grew up and your parents and then transition into writing books and sharing with the medical community and outside of the medical community with everyone else? What happened is that I always had a real sense of, the fullness of what was going on with people. So for instance, in the middle of the night in Dorchester, Massachusetts, when women would come in with miscarriages, I knew that it was very important to them to have this as a sacrament. So I did a lot of baptisms of what we call POC, products of conception. So I brought the spiritual element in always, and I was always pushing the envelope. Back then, they gave everyone a spinal anesthetic to have the baby, and the women would often just fall asleep, and then you'd have to pull the baby out with forceps. So I really began to question many of the practices I was learning early on, but things didn't change dramatically until uh, my final year of residency when my cousin called me to say she was healing her fibroid with a macrobiotic diet. And at that time, I met with Micho Kushi, the founder of the American Macrobiotic Movement and the founder of Erwan Natural Foods. This was long before Whole Foods. I love Erwan. I was just in LA there. <laughs> right? Isn't that the oh best my gosh. store on the it's planet? It's the best. I just oh want to live God, in I there. Know. Uh, me too. Me too. And those turmeric lattes, the golden oh. milk lattes are, oh, please. I can't even. Out. It was my favorite. Right. They have so many great tonics. <laughs> That's right. So... So I was with Micho, who founded Erwan so and cool. imported all this whole food. And I used to do consultations with him. And I would sit with him, and he did traditional Chinese medicine and would do facial diagnosis. And all these people would come in with very thick charts, many of whom had cancer, and they were given up by the medical profession. And many of them healed with whole food. So because I was a doctor who understood what these people were trying to accomplish because of my own background, I soon had a practice with many, many macrobiotic uh, couples and babies and, and all of that stuff. And I learned early on that food played a huge role, but it wasn't the only role at all. Like there, so there was emotional things going on, but I used to sit with Micho and I would see how medicine had failed people and how often a, a dietary change would turn them around. And at the same time, I began to give lectures with William Castelli, who was the founder of the Framingham Heart Project. And he would, we would give lectures and 
he'd say, he'd show the arteries of a monkey, that, an atherosclerosis and reversal of it with diet. And he would say, the only way you can get the right treatment in this country is to be a monkey. So we, we were, I was really very much on the forefront of food and healing. And so I did that during my entire time in practice. I was also on the board of the American Holistic Medical Association, was always around holistic colleagues. We were always afraid that our licenses would be taken away for using food to heal. And then I was president, co-president of the American Holistic Medical Association, along with Bernie Siegel, who wrote Love Medicine and Miracles long ago. So I always had this holistic thing going on, but also because my aunt and uncle were both medical doctors, I, I was never uh, you know, against doctors. I knew the, I knew the good stuff that modern medicine could do. I just felt that there was a big missing piece. And I began to write articles for what was then the East West Journal. And I was on the cover of East West Journal that then became Natural Health with my daughter Annie when she was an infant. But I asked them, please don't publish that cover story until I become board certified in OBGYN. So I passed my boards and then I said, okay, now you can publish it. And, and then the games began because I had my professors from med school and residency. When I gave one copy of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, he looked at me and he said, whatever happened to you? You used to be one of our best residents. So I, you know, that was when I entered the, the bonfire, let's say, and began to practice what I knew to be true, but always concerned about being thrown out on my ear <laughs> because this stuff was was not very well accepted then and frankly it's not as well accepted now except that Mark Hyman my colleague is working at the Cleveland Clinic and these the idea that food is healing is slowly making its way into the general population even if it's not making its way into the hospital so much Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to follow up on a, a couple of things that I'm curious about as someone who's, you know, been a fan of and followed your work for so many years. What was the process of writing Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom? Was that your first book? It's so robust it and has, has so much information has helped so many people. Um, you know, and you were a practicing doctor and, and mother at that time. What was the research and, and that process? And then the response of, you know, talking about it and promoting it. What was all of that like during that period of your life? <laughs> I love that you're asking me. It was, <laughs> it was like living in purgatory. I, it, it was so hard. I had to create a language of women's health. And there was no language of health. There was only language of women's disease. And so I was trying to articulate women's health. But to do it, I had to also talk about the addictive system and patriarchy and all of that stuff. Like, how is it that we've come to call the, the cycle responsible for all of life on planet Earth? How, how do we call that the curse? Like, how did any of this happen? And luckily for me, at the time, at Women to Women, the clinic that I co-founded with a couple nurse practitioners, we had uh, Patricia Rice, who did a practice called Therapeia, 
and she had trained out in California. She's both a creative artist, but also a Jungian psychotherapist. So she saw many of our patients and she would fill out the deeper story. And so therefore, I not only had the woman with, let's say, uh, seven episodes of vaginitis in six months, but then she would work with Patricia and I would get the bigger story of, let's say, maybe abuse in her marriage or something like that. And I began to see how the experiences of women in this culture are directly and strongly linked with the diseases that women get in their pelvic organs, the women I, that the diseases, the organs that identify us as female are vulnerable in patriarchy. And it was became so obvious to me that I had to write about it because when I would go to the holistic meetings and I'd read the holistic literature, if you uh, said the word cervix or uterus, it, you know, the, the text would say, see Kundalini. And I would think, damn, I'm seeing a lot of abnormal pap smears, warts and herpes way before we get to Kundalini. Like <laughs> there are some missing pieces here. So I was, I wrote an article for a publication that no longer exists called Woman of Power out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it was called Honoring Our Bodies, where I had the idea that the experiences of being female in the culture were directly and strongly contributing to PMS, dysmenorrhea, breast cancer, you name it. And that if we could change the beliefs and behavior around our bodies, we could heal. So this little article uh, led to, then I did the empowerment workshop with David Gershon and Gail Straub down at uh, the Omega Institute and the art of empowerment, this was in the early 80s, was how to use the laws of manifestation to create the life you wanted. So there I was, empowered with the way the universe works with the law of attraction. I understand it far differently now, but back then, I thought, oh, okay, well, we ought to be able to do this. And I then I began to write. And eventually, uh, oh, that book took me, I don't know, probably seven years. And I sent it uh, down to, I got a literary agent, one of my favorite rejections, by the way, from a big fancy literary agency called ICM was, I still have it, the letter said, your idea that emotions affect physical health though fascinating, has no marketing potential. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, it was, it, was, uh, it was bad. I've had a, had a lawsuit going from the time I was a third-year resident until, I would say, 90, 1999. I always had one lawsuit after another. I've been, let's just say I've been in the crucible. So that first book, when I first saw it, when it when it got published, the white version, 1994, I felt like a woman who'd been in labor for 48 hours and was so exhausted, she didn't even want to look at her baby. And then when I did the acknowledgments, you know how you got to thank the people? Yeah. I, was, I remember stomping around the house <laughs> saying, I wrote this book in spite of everybody. Yeah. Nobody supporting me. The only person I'm going to thank is myself. Um, you know, it was back when even my editors at Bantam Books, 
uh, questioned everything that I did, every reporter. Um, I, I did media training, and back then I learned that, um, you know, defensiveness to a reporter is like blood to a shark. But we need to remember that the mainstream media is owned by big food and big pharma. So they really didn't want to hear much of what I had to say. Now, you know, we have Dr. Oz, and he's a great guy with his show. And, and certainly Oprah, God bless her, was very supportive uh, early on. I was on the her talk show 10 times. Wow. So, yeah. So, but it was, it was, um, it was not easy. I sort of, I did it because of a, a soul contract. Yeah. It would have been so much easier to not to not do it. And and uh, just before now, years ago, when I was on the cover of East West Journal, I asked the food co-op where we got all our organic food. I said, listen, when those copies of East West Journal come in to Portland, Maine, call me, which they did. And I went in and I bought every issue. I bought all 15 issues so that no none of the doctors in the hospital would see it. But when a mainstream book comes out from a mainstream publisher, you can't go and buy every copy. So I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming. I was certain mm. that someone was in the house and that they were going to kill me mm. because I was so so afraid of the persecution that I thought would follow. Wow. And yeah, it, it, it's hard to do something that's that far ahead of its time. Uh, you, yeah. Now we have some wonderful things. You know, we have Kelly Brogan and uh, Aviva Rahm just came out with the Adrenal Thyroid Solution. I finally have some some female colleagues, MDs, who are fabulous. I, I really didn't. I had a few of those back then, not many. Well, you really paved the way for them, and, and I'm sure they're you know so grateful that that career path you were really able to show that that existed and it was, you know, putting yourself out there in this controversial way was okay. I'd like to ask as well about, I've heard you discuss this before in other interviews and in some of your work about some of the systematic things wrong with the medical system and some of the problems that started way back in history. And I think there's some that even... I've heard you speak about are related to the Rockefellers and how the pharmaceutical industry kind of got started. Was that something you were learning about back at that time as well? Could you kind of tell us about that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, I learned all about it. And, you know, it's like one of those things when you learn about the Federal Reserve, you know, that it's a private bank and it has nothing to do with the government. And, uh, you know, the the history of it is kind of chilling. Um, indeed, uh, John D. Rockefeller, who was the founder of Standard Oil, was also the person who uh, buried the subway in L.A. so that everyone had cars because he wanted to have cars uh, and public transportation pretty much wiped that out and decided to make uh petroleum-based drugs, the standard in medicine, and he had huge amounts of money. So he had published the Flexner Report, and the Flexner Report was the, the thing that coined the term quack, and they systematically closed all the women's medical schools at the turn of the century, the homeopathic medical schools. Hahnemann 
was a homeopathic medical school, all the naturopathic medical schools. So systematically, everyone who was not a drug and surgery type of doctor was systematically belittled and called a quack until we have what we have today. The controlled, the double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial was actually invented by the homeopathy profession to prove that homeopathy worked. Now it's the standard for, for medicine. But, you know, as um, Kelly Brogan so beautifully points out in her book, A Mind of Your Own, uh, the studies that lead to the acceptance of, for instance, most of the psych meds are woefully inadequate. And we seem to, we're a drug-taking culture, and we really believe in better living through chemistry. So it's, it's not just one person who's a villain, but an entire population who's been hoodwinked. And then because all tribes wound their members in the same way, betrayal, abandonment, or shame, no one dares to stand up because of what happens when you say something. Uh, if you even question the fact that we're giving way too many vaccines to infants and that those vaccines contain neurotoxins like aluminum, if you even question that, you're called a quack, you're called out on the rail, you're, you're almost, you know, you're tarred and feathered, burned at the stake. All you're asking is for the evidence and for a little science to support you. The other thing that I've found is that the things that I have known intuitively, like omega-3 fats, particularly DHA, need to be in baby formula because they're found in human breast milk and they're not found anywhere else for a baby. I mean, no formula has them and the, and the brain needs this particular fat for full development. We knew about that for a long time. It took them years to add that to baby formula. Uh, vitamin D is another. We could eliminate so much juvenile onset diabetes if everybody had a good level of vitamin D when the when the mother was pregnant. Only now is that is that stuff coming out. It takes on average 17 years from the time we find something that would be very beneficial. It takes 17 years for it to get put into practice because. Doctors are trained, we're all trained that the first thing you do with a new idea is you reject it. Or one of my professors said, the human mind is a unique organism that is best suited to produce antibodies against new ideas. So everybody participates in that, really. And we can vilify all the, you know, big pharma and big food and all of the rest of it. But each of us has the, the power to create the circumstances of our own life to some degree. That doesn't mean that you don't try to change things. I mean, heaven knows I've been trying to change OBGYN for years. I was a resident when fetal monitoring came in, and suddenly our C-section rate went up to 25%. Now it's 30 to 50% in some hospitals, and nobody has ever proved that fetal monitoring, electronic fetal monitoring, does anything except increase the C-section rate. I'm not kidding. That's the medical literature, but now it's been absolutely accepted, so you couldn't not do it. So when you really, 
really look critically at a lot of what we do. I mean, when I started delivering babies, they used to shave everybody, you know, because it was like a surgery. You shave all the pubic hair and then drape them as though they're going to have a surgical procedure. Oh, and then whisk the baby out to the nursery to clean it up and and make sure that it was warm, whereas the best incubator is right on the mother's chest. So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that, but until the people wake up, it won't change. It, a change doesn't come from inside these institutions. It comes from outside. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that, you know, I grew up in the 90s when, you know, your book was published and thinking, you know, the way I grew up and the way that I live now and, you know, the things that I'm into now, you know, being someone, you know, part of the Hay House world and and the the things (laughs) that I think about and, and the way that you know, we live is such a far cry from a lot of the things that were popular in like the 80s and and 90s. And I see, you know, like you were saying, there has been, you know, since you were on Oprah is a a big, you know, reason for that, Dr. Oz, like you said, why do you think that things are leaning more to, or from my perspective, getting at least better than when you were starting out and people are becoming more open to, you know, intuition and belief being more important than genes and, and these sorts of concepts than, you know, while it's not wildly accepted now, it at le- it's more accepted than it was. Why do you think that that is? Do you think that it's heading in the right direction? Oh, absolutely. And the reason that this is happening, uh, if you look at in, in the Bible, there's this symbolic, you know, 40, the number 40. And the, the, the Bible is a kind of a symbolic text. And the 40-year thing after the, uh, after the slaves were freed by Moses from Pharaoh's rule, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Well, what that really refers to is two generations. It takes two generations for a new idea to really uh, become solidified. So if I look at your generation, um, my daughter's generation, I, I talk about that I went up the mountain and you know hacked a path. You guys are coming in and putting in landscape lighting um, for, for you to think about affirmations, um, oracle cards. It's what you grew up with as teenagers. And so your kids, next generation, this is just going to be how it is. Uh, when you talk to someone from West Germany, they'll tell you that when the Berlin Wall fell and the East Germans came in who were brought up under communism, it just is going to take a while for people to get with the program with new ideas. Um, you know, the entire French resistance in World War II were all people under the age of 25. Uh, because they had nothing to lose. So I'm very excited by the the youth of today because for them, this all just makes sense. In the same way that when my kids were in college and they would tell me about their friends, they never used the term Asian, black, or gay. It was just a friend. You know, they didn't have to talk about what they were or, or label them. And so we are totally heading in the right direction. I just read today in Joe Mercola's newsletter that Dan and Yogurt has uh, decided not to use any GMO 
dairy, and when I say GMO, meaning the, the cattle, the dairy cattle are not going to be fed any GMO foods so that they can say that there's no GMOs in their, in their yogurt. And what's happening is the small producers of organic GMO-free products are flourishing. I listened to the guy who um, started Patagonia, and he said he simply cannot produce clothing. The reason he started to produce clothing with organic cotton is that he said he could no longer stomach producing cotton from the conventional way because it's one of the most toxic crops grown and that all the workers in regular cotton get sick. Plus, they have guys with shotguns who are by the pools in cotton producing areas. The pools are so full of toxic pesticides, they have to scare off the birds so they won't land. And he said, I just couldn't do it. Are my clothes more expensive? Yes, but they last a long time. And when I go back to the trade shows for fabrics, he said, I think his book is called Let My People Go Surfing. When I go back to those trade shows, the companies making the cheap stuff, which is very toxic to the environment, are not doing well. But the companies like Patagonia are doing very well. And that's the direction we're headed in. Yeah, that's great. He seems like a really cool dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite topics that you speak about is aging. And I would love if we could talk about that a little bit in a culture where aging is primarily viewed as this negative thing. Is it possible to grow older and age without experiencing the dread and symptoms of aging that we usually think of when it comes to aging? Oh, not, not only is it, it's, it's the most fun you'll ever have. So today, let me just give an example. <laughs> so the first thing you do is, uh, so this is important. And finally, you know, my daughters get this. Your last birthday that you should put a number on is 33. First of all, that's a mystical number. It is the number, it's the year that Christ died. And that's symbolic. When you, when you pass and you go to heaven, I learned this from Tommy Rosa, who wrote Health Lessons from Heaven to Earth. Um, he said everyone who died after the age of 33 goes back to 33. If you died younger than that, you stay that way. But other, he had an incredible near-death experience. So let 33 be your last uh, time that you put an age on it. And then you want to enter the ageless years. Don't do any um, milestone birthdays. Because when you do, here's why. We co-author each other's biology. So let me give you an example of a friend who was turning 40. She, her husband or somebody put a banner across Main Street in our town showing a car going up a hill and then the car just tilting over the hill to go down and meet the Grim Reaper. So they had this as a, uh, as a banner over the town because she was now, quote, over the hill. And I remember when I used to get off planes from doing lectures, there was a time when Many, many people would be met at the airport for their 40th birthday with black balloons. So this is a cultural portal where the culture teaches you what is supposed to happen at a certain age. When a woman is 35 and she's not yet pregnant, 
she really gets the idea from the culture that she has to freeze her eggs and that uh, time is running out. When in fact, the vast majority of 36, 37 year olds get pregnant with no problem whatsoever. But it is that cultural portal that is the problem. Then there's the cultural portal of 65. That number was chosen by Otto von Bismarck uh, in Germany in 1880 to give pensioners a little time to have an income before they died. The average life expectancy then was 18 months. It's now 24 years. So when you uh, reach, quote, retirement age, retirement means no longer useful. I've read statistics that uh, policemen in New York City generally die within three years of their retirement because if you're a cop, you see your worth as doing your job. Uh, Women are a little less... um, affected by this than men because not much has been expected of women and women identify with far more things than their role in life. But in general, I would say don't state your age, just stop doing it. I just found out something amazing. A friend of mine who works for Unity, which has run a silent prayer service for over a hundred years, just told me that she was going to interview Catherine Ponder And Catherine Ponder's books, The Dynamic Laws of Healing, The Dynamic Laws of, um, what else, Prayer, they're amazing books. I could have sworn that Catherine Ponder had been dead for years. She's not. Yeah, I thought that too. Right? Nobody knows her age. But I was able to slide in a couple questions. I can't wait to hear. Um, You know, and uh, apparently the staffers at Unity the last, you know, the age that they say she is, is 84 or something. But here she is, and she just stepped out of it. She's just not, so no more milestone birthdays. Then remember that chronologic age and biologic age are entirely different. And there's a lot of data on this. So you can be 50 going on 30 or 30 going on 50. And your cells listen to every word you say. I've met so many people in their 30s who say, well, now that I'm 30, it's normal to have aches and pains. And or now that I'm 40 or now that I'm or here's the other. Here's the other. At my age, fill in the blank. And usually it's at my age. It's too late too." so you uh, in the studies of healthy centenarians that Dr. Martinez has done all over the world. Yeah, they're so good. He said that these these people who are over 100 and they're very, very healthy, um, they practice the causes of health. And what are those? Elevated cognition, that's talking about, um, that's talking about positive things, like just what we're doing, positive ideas, um, exalted emotions, joy, happiness, things that make you jump up for joy. I'm just watching The Chef's Table. A friend of mine oh, who's a yeah. filmmaker said, you've you got to watch The Chef's Table. It's so Season beautifully Season one, shot. episode one. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. Right? I'm just listening to the guy talk about tortellini. And it's right? like, holy cow, this is so gorgeous. And the yeah. music is so perfect. So that's my exalted emotions. And uh, then the third one is interesting. It's righteous anger. 
And you don't stay in the righteous anger, but you don't sugarcoat it either. So what that means is if your innocence is being threatened or the innocence of another is being threatened around you, let's say that some jerk is being nasty to a waitress, then you say something. Or a friend of mine the other night told me that his daughter came home uh, from playing with her friend who's 13 next door. And the father had pulled back the shower curtain and was being inappropriate with his daughter. And my friend went over to the house, knocked on the door, and he said, buddy, you do that again and you're going to deal with me. That's righteous anger. Yeah, good for them. It's amazing. Yeah, and that was 30 years ago. And that's what uh, Martinez found out that many of these healthy centenarians did that stuff long before there were laws, long before it was politically correct. He tells the story of a woman who's at like 103, and when she was 12, her mother's boyfriend kept coming into her room at night, and she got tired of it. So when he was taking a nap one day, she gets the knife out of the kitchen, she goes into his bedroom, she puts the knife right down on his lower unit, wakes him up, says, you touch me again, and you don't want to know what's going to happen to you. Wow. Like with all the full force of her soul, like in the color purple, right? Yeah. When the woman says to the guy, you touch me again and your life will rot. See, that's really healthy stuff. Now, you don't stay in the anger. Like, you know, you don't see me out demonstrating against big pharma and big food. But I will talk about it on this podcast. You know, it's like I have some things where my righteous anger will always rise to the surface. Another one is infant circumcision. (laughs) So because I did hundreds of those because it was part of my job, you know, so my righteous anger is, wait a minute, you can't be doing this to little boys. We, you know, that you don't have their permission and you're cutting off 40,000 erotic nerves without their permission. This is just wrong and there's no medical reason to do it. So I will always talk about that kind of thing. That's my my idea of righteous anger. Wow, yeah, that's so fascinating. Another study that I've heard you speak about when it comes to, you know, our beliefs being more important than our genes with aging is the study about the people who were exposed to things from their youth. Can you talk about that one a oh, little yeah. bit? Yeah, that's a great study. That's Ellen Langer from Harvard. And interestingly, this study came out in 94, the same year that the first edition of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom came out. And by the way, the the way you want to talk about it is this. And this is Dr. Martinez, his his quote. um, Getting older is inevitable. Aging is optional. Mm. Because the truth is we start aging when we're born you see. So therefore, when we don't use the term aging until about 40, you know, we really don't. And, and the reason people are so afraid to turn 40 is that's when we culturally believe that the, quote, aging starts. So better to say growing older. But this, here's what Langer did, and it's a fascinating study. She's done many, and they're all uh, in her book, Mindfulness, and also another book called Counterclockwise. 
So they took a group of men and for, and they had two groups, the control group and the study group, and they uh, took them both away from their daily lives. And the first thing they did was measure cardiac output, uh, lung capacity. They took pictures of them, hearing, eyesight, fitness levels, all this stuff. And then the group they were studying had to live as if they were in their prime. So it was, you know, the only instructions were, okay, right now you are, boom, whatever year they chose. I think the guys were between, you know, 70 and 90. And let's say that they chose all the magazines from when they were, say, 45, uh, had TV programs from when they were 45. They lived as if they were 45. At the end of the 10 days, a game of touch football broke out with these guys. They carried their own bags. Their strength increased. Their grip strength increased. They looked 10 years younger. Their cardiac output improved. Their pulmonary function improved. Uh, eyesight improved. Hearing improved. Everything improved. The control group where they just reminisced about the good old days, nothing changed. Now, when you talk to Ellen Langer now, what she said is, we need subcultures of wellness because as soon as those guys came away from the monastery or wherever they were their families met them and said oh let me carry your bags and in other words they went back into the co-authorship of their decrepitude so I had some guys here today with um, looking at a new door because I needed a new door into the backyard this house was built from plans in popular mechanics from the 50s, and it's got all these levels and all these stairs. And he said to me, does anyone trip over these stairs? I said, no. And I said, but I did have to laugh because I had a carpenter come in here, and he wanted to put up a railing on the stairs to upstairs. He said, for when you get tottery. <laughs> and I said, I don't intend to get tottery. And yeah. I've just found out that one of the biggest trends in real estate now is uh, every room on, on one level and a whole new um, trade for people, for tradespeople, to close off the second floor of houses. So we don't have as many single level houses as we could use because all of these people are into planned decrepitude. Oh my goodness! Uh, you, yeah, so think about it. Well, you know, I better get a uh, a house all on one level because I'm going to need it. You see, whereas uh, my mother's currently 91, she does have milestone birthdays because um, you know she didn't get the memo, and so I go along with it. And um, she lives in a cabin on a pond. She has a lot of stuff stored in a loft where she climbs a ladder, no problem. Um, she went to Mount Everest Base Camp at the age of 84, which is 100 miles, pretty much straight up with no oxygen. And, you know, so my model is getting older is not associated with decrepitude. Her best friend died at age 93, and my mother went through enormous grief. They did the Appalachian Trail together and climbed the 100 highest peaks in New England. They did all kinds of stuff in their 80s, and they'd go off in my mother's camper. And when Anne died, she just had a lot of grief, and she got dizzy, and then she couldn't ski. Well, it's second year out from the grief, 
her eyesight has improved and she's now skiing again. <laughs> so we could have said, well, you know, that's because, you know, at, at your age, blah, blah, blah. No, right. it was the grief. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, you hit so many notes of, you know, I have these copious notes of things that I wanted to ask you because, like I said, I've, I really admire your work and you already hit a lot of those notes. But, and one of those was to talk about role models and, and, you know, your mother is, is one of them. And my friend Val, who's been a guest on this podcast, people remember, but her and I have this thing, which I think that you'll love, where we find together women who are older chronologically and that, that we just really admire, who like you and people doing really great things and living these really beautiful lives. And we use them as role models with, I'm changing the language, um, getting older, not not aging. Yeah, yeah, getting older. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is so smart, isn't it? It's so smart to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we love it. And I, and I heard you say once that, you know, strong legs lead to a strong mind. So to see these women, you know, still capable in their bodies, still doing yoga, still dancing, still moving, still, you know, teaching yoga or what we were just at a, a retreat in Hawaii and there were, you know, older women doing yoga and do, we were just like, yes, that's what we want to be. And, and we kind of have this like thing with each other where we point them out. And I think it's so helpful. Can you talk a little bit about limiting ourselves and I heard you say this thing once of you know how older people can kind of have this you already talked about this this cautious way of living but you once said I think the way you articulated it was so beautiful of having a near life experience and can you you talk about what you meant by that yeah yeah what happens is when people are afraid afraid of decrepitude afraid of living fully they begin to shut down their vitality. And literally then the functions of their body begin to decrease. The strong leg thing is interesting. I mean, we can, we've shown uh, in the oldest old people in their 90s that you can strengthen their quadriceps to the point where they can just get up and go to the bathroom themselves, even if they've been in assisted living or places like a nursing home. What happens to them is though, the minute that they do that, or you know, you grab their arm to help them across the street, again, their biology is co-authored by the culture that treats them as though they're old. And uh, I mean, many families have this thing. My mother's always been so thankful to us kids because if she wants to go off driving somewhere and she really loves to drive and she's done all kinds of trips by herself, we don't say, oh, you can't do that because of your age. So nobody puts anyone in a cage of age. In fact, when she was going to do the Everest trip, I had people come up to me and say, why are you letting her do that? At her age, there it is, at her age, that's the meme, she could die of uh, high altitude pulmonary edema. And I said, if she dies, she dies. She's always wanted to do this. And of course, uh, you know, she was the one whose uh, pulmonary oxygenation stayed better than most everyone else. Uh, John Glenn went into space at the age of 77. No one knew if people could go into space. But then they found out that indeed the age had nothing to do with it. He trained with all the other astronauts. 
what we've discovered, and this is important, and this is the work of Joan Vernikos, who was the chief uh, medical scientist at NASA at the time Glenn went into space. She said he was head of the Senate Subcommittee on Aging at the time. And when these astronauts would get back from weightlessness of space, they had lost their balance because they didn't have a horizon to orient to. And weightlessness, she realized, was a model for aging. When you don't move through gravity regularly, that's aging. So she had 35-year-olds who had lost bone density. They'd lost pulmonary function, cardiac output. No one talks about it. But she said they lost a lot of their vitality and functioning from being weightless in space. Well, many, many people are weightless in life. If you sit more than six hours a day, there's no amount of exercise, believe it or not, that can actually compensate for all the weightlessness that you have had. So we're actively working on this with truck drivers and people who have to sit for a living. And it isn't just standing all day. That's no better. You have to move through the Earth's gravitational field. Uh, Katie Bowman has a wonderful blog and website and her work is uh, nutritious movement. And she finds that the more time you spend outside and climbing trees, she's got a great program. It's, it's got the, um, I think it's got the word aging in it, but nevertheless, she's got women in their 70s on monkey bars and all of that, because what we know for sure is it is not your chronologic age at all that has to do with the limitations. It's how you've used your muscles. So let me give you an example. I've had a frozen shoulder on the left since August and frozen shoulder is incredibly common in midlife women and some men. And emotionally it's related to feeling overburdened and being angry but not being able to get it out in any way. And of course you don't know this consciously. Well, what's happened because that uh, shoulder, it's it's way better now um, because I've been working on it, but But, and this is the damnedest thing, the skin on my right upper arm looks completely normal. There's no cellulite or, you know, that sort of old lady arm look. Yes. (laughs) But the left side where I haven't been able to use the bicep or the shoulder muscles as well, the skin is entirely different, but it's now coming back to the vitality that it has on the right. Now that has to do with fascia. Fascia is connective tissue that connects everything, soles of your feet up to the top of your head. It contains a secondary nervous system. It's where all the acupuncture meridians are. And when you keep your fascia moist and healthy and stretched, it literally will reverse a lot of the uh, stuff that people have going on. Now, you talked about a yoga retreat And that's very helpful. But many, many times, if yoga is not taught properly, people will over uh, stretch their joints and then dense fascia gets laid down in their joints and they end up with hip replacements because it is the naturally flexible people flexible in their joints who are drawn to yoga. But that can be dangerous. So what you want to do is flex. You want to contract the muscle and then stretch it. And my friends at bendablebody.com down in New York City have 
uh, a lot of YouTube videos on exactly how to do that. And then the yoga can really work for you. And I, that has changed my life, the uh, bendable body, true flexibility training. Wow, that's that's fascinating because I and my yoga teacher training hurt myself because of that yes. exact thing. I've, I'm someone who, you know, I can pop into the splits and I can do all of these things. And when I was in high school and found yoga from, you know, one credit gym class and became hooked because of the music and the heat and the philosophy and the people, that's really what, you know, drew me in. It, yeah, the movement was so easy for me, not because I was, you know, practicing so often and, and really open. It was just because I'm someone that, like you said, has those naturally really flexible joints. And it wasn't actually helpful for me to do those things. I kept, you know, hurting my ankles and hurting my knees. And so that's something that I've really had to learn. And I just wrote down bendable body because that's bendablebody.com yeah so changed my life yeah <laughs> really that's so stuff. helpful yeah great it's fascinating great. so another part of your work that I love and has really helped me and this is a concept you know in your new book making life easy is sexual health and pleasure and why that is so important for women for their physical, mental, emotional health. And so could you talk about what role sex and pleasure plays in health of women at, at all yes. ages? Yes, at all ages. Um, first of all, we have the erotic erectile tissue in a female body is at, we have as much as a man in his penis, but it's all inside. And what's so weird to me about this is as a board certified OBGYN, I never learned this anatomy. I work with an illustrator from the New England Journal of Medicine. And back when I was revising Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom in 2010, I said, Scott, would you go down to the Countway Medical Library at Harvard? And um, please, you know, I want you to draw some uh, anatomical drawings so that I can teach this anatomy to women. It's not there. The medical library at Harvard does not have the anatomy of the clitoris. Now the clitoris, the tip that you see outside is just the tiniest tip. Most of it is inside and it runs along the pubic bone. In fact, it wasn't even um, elucidated, except on ultrasound, just very recently. And isn't that crazy? It's like, wow, we know everything about the penis, but we don't know about the female erotic anatomy. So a, a while back, there was an article, is the G-spot real? It's like, oh my goodness, you people. Okay, the G-spot is uh, really related to the periurethral sponge and the way you feel it, and I want all women to know about this, you've got to be aroused. You've got to be sexually aroused. And then if you hook your second and third finger under the pubic bone, you will feel it right at 12 o'clock. And it feels like a raised uh, nickel or quarter size area. And it's very, very sensitive. Now, what's fascinating is that area of erectile erotic tissue goes directly to the pineal gland in the brain, the seat of enlightenment. So it's almost like we've been talked out of the most powerful parts of our bodies. And 
So what you want to do is learn your anatomy. There's a thing called a crystal wand where you can uh, stimulate that sacred spot. I prefer to call it the sacred spot, not the G spot, because every spot on the female body is some guy's name, right? The Grafenberg spot. Woo, we have a flag. We have been mm-hmm. here before. You know, the whole female body is like that. It's uh, it's like colonized territory, the Bartholin's glands and the Montgomery's tubercles and the tubes of Fallopi, who was an Italian, like that. So anyway, I like to call it the sacred spot. And women, it's very helpful for women to learn what is pleasurable for them. And to do that, you have to learn self-pleasuring. You need to learn what works for you. And the pelvic nerve, in, in her book, um, The Vagina the uh, by Naomi Wolf, she talks about how varied the pelvic nerve is in women. And so some women can have an orgasm through vaginal penetration, and many can't just because of the anatomy of the pelvic nerve. So therefore, you want to experiment with yourself. And, and uh, let's say that you're heterosexual and you're with a man. Most men are not taught this either. They're taught that they should be able to uh, make a woman swoon, but they don't they don't know what her wiring diagram is. So she needs to learn it and then invite him in to the party. And then we also have the fact that uh, many, many men have been gently mutilated. That's called circumcision. So the foreskin, which is really the prepuce, is the anatomy of that is so that it will literally cling to the rugae or the wrinkles, the folds in the vagina, so that the clitoral system is maximally stimulated through intercourse. That won't happen with a man who's been circumcised because he doesn't have that skin to to connect and form this bond. So women who have been with intact men versus the one who've been um, circumcised will tell you that there is uh, quite a difference. Um, so I just want people to know about that. I have a section for men. If they can self-pleasure and get to the point of 15 minutes without ejaculation and then press on the spot on the perineum, which would be uh, superficial to their prostate, and press on that, they can learn to last as long as they want, keep the erection going without ejaculating. And a man can even learn to have an orgasm without an ejaculation. This is kind of standard tantra, and it's the work of Montak Chia. Hmm. So I talk a lot about this because the erotic energy does not need to be expressed in having sex. Women, and this is so cool. Women are primarily erotic, and in in studies with a uh, a vaginal what is the thing called a vaginal like plasmograph, whatever it is, measures blood flow in the vagina. Women's vaginal blood flow responds to erotic things of many of of all kinds of things in nature. So a sunset might increase vaginal blood flow, a flower, a beautiful scene, or being with a lover 
who she feels safe with. Uh, Naomi Wolf talks about the um, vaginal pulse index amplitude increasing when a woman saw her husband heave a couch off the bed of a truck because he was so strong. Uh, so we have this amazing connection with Eros and with life force in our bodies. And when you can connect that with your mind and your brain and your heart, you're functioning on all cylinders. And that never goes away. In fact, you can cultivate it at any age. But what does the culture teach women? Oh, after menopause or after 40, you know, the men all want women who are 20 years younger. They actually don't. They want someone who's not angry Mm. and someone who's happy. So you have to figure out a way to be happy and not angry, despite the fact that one in three women will be abused over her lifetime, usually by a man. Because most men are good guys, and they want to please you. Yeah. What about the communication within relationships, um, romantic relationships in particular, especially when it has to do with sex and pleasure? And, you know, something I've heard you speak about before, which I think will have something to do with this, is masculine and feminine energies within relationships. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yes. Okay, so... Pat Allen talks about the feminine energy wants to be cherished. The masculine energy wants to be respected. So you have to decide which one you want. And this is equal whether you're gay, straight, bisexual, transgendered. Seriously, in all relationships, you need a yin and a yang. And generally speaking, one person will do one role and one person will do the other role. But as Pat Allen says, we have more men with vaginas and more women with penises than ever before in human history. <laughs> and so, uh, so therefore, you have to decide, are you going to do the masculine role or the feminine role? And just in general, what you can do, so with a good man, I'm, now I'm just going to talk from, we're going to assume that the man is in the masculine role and wants to be respected and the woman is in the cherished role and wants to be cherished. What she needs to know is good men, good men very often get more turned on by her pleasure than their own. They love to give pleasure. So as a woman, your job is to give pleasure feedback. You know, it's exactly the same in tango, by the way. That's why I love to do Argentine tango. It's like a three-minute love affair, but you don't have to buy appliances or worry about STDs. So what you want to do always, see, in tango, the leader, usually a man, not always, is constantly responding to the follower's body. She's the ocean, he's the surfboard. So he has to surf on her pleasure and intuit. Does she want to be to do a turn here? Does she want to do a straight shot? What does she want? And a really good leader can intuit that. The same way with sex, but in sex, usually a man's going to have trouble with intuiting that. And they and they tend to do things that are phallocentric. So with a guy they like a lot of stimulation around the cock area. So they therefore think 
that a woman wants a lot of clitoral stimulation right off or, you know, or nipples right off. What they don't realize is you got to go around the most erotic areas. You've got to be very teasing and playful. And then you as the woman, you've got to give constant feedback. So I tell women, practice with the feedback. Ooh, yeah, more of that. That feels good. A guy wants to win. They want to win. They're very different from women, most of them. Mm. They're very different and they want to win. So they need to know you're with them and you like what they're doing. And if you got a guy who's just constantly pushing your head down to his crotch, wrong guy. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) You you know, you want a guy who's there for the for the party, who understands that a woman is capable of unlimited amounts of pleasure. I think that this is why we don't have the female erotic anatomy in the Harvard Countway Medical Library, because if if people knew how insatiable women were, it would just kind of turn the world order on its head, wouldn't it? Yeah. So uh, Regina Thomas Howard has a very fun exercise in her book, Owners and Operators Guide to Men. And I don't know if it's in her new book, Pussy uh, Reclamation, but this is a good exercise. So she suggests that when you're, um, you want to know the power of your own eroticism. So w- let's say you're in line for coffee at a Starbucks. You put your attention down on your genitals. Just put your attention there and feel it. And then admire something about a guy who's safe in the area. Or it could be a woman. But do it with a guy if you're a heterosexual. And so you think about your genitals your, your um, seat of power, and then you admire something about a guy and see what happens. You know, we used to have in old Europe, cave after cave after cave with female vulvas and genitals and vaginas, and this was seen as the way that sacred came into form. The religion of the goddess, 30,000 years this thing went on. I mean, patriarchy is a blip on the screen. Men want to worship a goddess. And to be a goddess, you got to know that you're a goddess. And that takes a little deprogramming because we've been taught right from a young age that it's dirty down there. You need feminine hygiene deodorant. I mean, do they sell masculine hygiene deodorant? I don't think so. So it's like that. Wow. Oh my gosh, this is all just like blowing my mind. And I feel like (laughs) it sounds so simple, yet thinking about it, you know, from my perspective and using myself as an example, communication with sex and pleasure is such a challenge for me because I feel like you have to feel really comfortable and confident to do that and to even give feedback, which even, you know, if you're with a really safe, wonderful partner, it can be really vulnerable. That's the deal. Yeah. It's so vulnerable. It's, it, it, it is so vulnerable. But, you know, there's such power in vulnerability. You know, uh, Brene Brown and her wonderful work on shame yeah. uh, talks about the only difference between someone who is shame-based and someone who isn't is the belief that they are worthy of, of love. Mm. So we have to, so we all have to practice 
feeling worthy. And that's why Louise Hay's famous mirror work is so powerful. And, and I know so many people in the Hay House family and all of that who've never done it. Because the minute you start to do it, you begin to feel how vulnerable it makes you. Looking in the mirror and saying, I love you. I really love you. And you know, in about day 25, your essential self starts to look back at you. And that has the message. And then you get transformed. So what I would recommend, because remember at the very beginning, I told you that I was now back to doing affirmations. Yeah. Well, I had this whole series of affirmations about sexuality and orgasm. And, you know, I would just write the affirmations until they turned me on. And so one of them was, you know, I am Aphrodite. I make love with wild abandon. abandon. And I would just say these things. Did I feel it at first? Hell no. But then what happens is, you begin to sink into it. And learning tango really helped me sink into it because that is a dance. It's led from the heart, but the heart is leading to the hips. So, you you know, the guy is actually just moving your hips with his heart. Mm. Wow. These are, yeah. this is so helpful. This is, I apparently need to learn tango and these affirmations. <laughs> Absolutely. This is great. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. This has been so amazing. And I want to get to the quick fire questions I ask everyone and, and ask you those. But one thing from your new book that I just have to ask you, which I really, really loved, is you discuss the cost of not having community and why community is so important for our health and well-being. So could you touch on that quickly before we get to the quick fire questions? Yes. We know that um, rats in a cage alone will actually kill themselves by drinking the water with heroin in it. But rats in an enriched environment with other rats and with toys won't even go for the heroin. So therefore, when you have an enriched environment where you have community, you are far less likely to overindulge in sugar, alcohol, drugs, because the drugs, when people get addicted, they're a symptom. I mean, they're a solution to a bigger problem. And the problem is sadness, disconnection, lack of community. Now, you have this podcast. So you have your community that listens to this podcast. And Facebook and social media are a double-edged sword. Because to me, I don't want to have a friend on Facebook unless I've actually hugged them. On my personal page, I really know those people. I could go to their homes and spend the night. I hug them. And then there's the business part of it, you know, where you have this much bigger community. But with social media, you can find meetup groups. I've got an ageless goddess group that I launched for Goddesses Never Age. Many of those women have found each other. So it's extraordinarily important for all of us to have flesh and blood people that you can look into their eyes, that you can hug, that you can be with, and just leave your cell phone in the car or in your purse. <laughs> That's yeah. really important. Yeah. 
Mm, preach. I that is my favorite. You know, there's so many great things that you've said, but that's maybe my favorite. And I didn't really know why, but I just felt the sense of I loved having parties and having people around me. And I didn't even necessarily. I would even just go hide in my room, like I if I needed a moment to myself. But I just loved having people around, and I feel so much better when I have people around. And even though I need that, you know, time to recharge on my own sometimes having community and having people around I think is just so crucial and anyway I just love that part about community yes and and it is and I'm glad that yeah that you're the one I used to tell my kids just look everyone's looking for a good gig so don't wait like plan something yeah and people will come yeah you know so I cleared out my living room and I've got a a dance floor there so I have tango parties and we have potlucks and you know, all of that. But many times, those of us longing for community have to make the first move. Yes. And then you'll find that everyone else is also looking for the same thing. They just didn't dare do it. Yes. (laughs) And I want to come to your tango potlucks. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Okay, so these are the questions that I ask everyone and I asked Kate many years ago. So just kind of say the first thing that comes to mind and we'll try to get through as, as many as we can. So what's okay. your favorite fruit and favorite vegetable? Ooh, favorite fruit is pomegranate. Favorite vegetable at the moment is, what is it? It's recently been cauliflower nice. <laughs> with turmeric baked in the mm. oven. Okay. Yeah, it sounds really good. And the last person I had on the podcast also said cauliflower, and she had like this cauliflower tahini recipe that looked delicious. Ooh, that's yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to send it to you. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week or month? First thing that comes to mind. Oh, my God. I had these um, mangoes down in in Mexico at this Maya Tulum yoga retreat, and this mangoes with strawberries were beyond, beyond. Ooh, that sounds delicious. (laughs) Yeah. Greatest lesson about family. Oh, greatest lesson about family is they are your original tribe, but sometimes – you chose them so that you could individuate and create your own. Mm. Don't let them keep you stuck. I love that. We have a lot of mothers that listen to the podcast. What's the greatest lesson about motherhood and not losing yourself as a mother? The greatest lesson is never, ever, ever lose your own passion and your own Uh, Do not self-sacrifice because if you become a martyr, what will happen is your child, you will become the mother that no one wants to be around. You're a drug on the market. But if you continue to grow and change, your kids will always want to be around you and you will give them a role model for what it looks like beyond motherhood and they will be so grateful even though when they're little they may be pissed (laughs) Mm. (laughs) yeah that's great so with your morning routines we talk a lot about morning routines on this podcast what are some of the non-negotiable things you do in the morning so what are maybe the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning and how do those affect how the rest of your day goes The absolute first thing I do is I stay there in bed so that I can remember my dreams. I've had a dream practice with a dream guide, Doris E. Cohen, for 11 years. I um, dictate the dream 
into my iPhone. I, I turn off the uh, internet, but I can still do a voice memo. And so I dictate the dream and I give it a title. Sometimes the dreams are there, sometimes they're not. But that's the first thing I do is get the dream down. Then I get up and I feed the cat and I make myself my water for the day. So I have this gallon pitcher of water. I put in one eighth teaspoon of Himalayan sea salt per 20 ounces. I pour a pint of that out. I add Remag and Remite, which are these incredible liquid uh, magnesium and other minerals that Dr. Carolyn Dean has come up with. I then take that upstairs. Then I do a 15 minute meditation and get that water uh, finished. And that's my non-negotiable morning routine. Mm, I love that. <laughs> what about in the yeah. evening? What are maybe the last three things you do before you go to sleep? And what are the things you do to wind down after a long day? Okay. I, um, I had a reading with Ray Veyu, the health medium, and he, much to my shock, he told me, you're not getting enough rest. And I'm thinking, how could that be? Well, it's because I was going to bed too late. I was getting plenty of sleep, but on the wrong end. And the mm. fact that he picked that up as an intuitive really got my attention. So I make sure it's lights out between 10 and 10.30. That's new for me. Um, before that, uh, I have a biomat, and I'll often lie down on my biomat, which is a wonderful infrared uh, heat very relaxing and I'll watch a couple episodes of something on Netflix. I'm currently into anything that the BBC does. So I just finished uh, Last Tango in Halifax, but now I'm starting on the chef's table. So one or two episodes on the biomat, then before it's 10, I turn off the Wi-Fi in the house, then I go upstairs, I'll often take a bath and read something uh, inspirational. I'm currently reading a book about hawks because my friend Patty Gift down at Hay House has been having hawks land on the windowsill of Hay House and in her yard in Brooklyn. So we're we're looking at hawks these days. They're, that's up for us. We want to go to one of those falconry places where you can work with the birds. Cool. So, you know, something inspirational like that that I'm reading. Then when I go to sleep, I turn on John Gabriel's visualization app that I have on my phone, and he has an evening visualization on visualization for weight loss. And whether or not you use it for weight loss, I have never once heard the whole thing. It's, uh, it's free on the internet, and uh, he's just, his voice is so great, and that just puts me to sleep. And it's this sort of fabulous reprogramming of my cells for youthfulness and vitality and all that stuff. And I use a uh, silk pillowcase, silk charmeuse. Um, silk's good for the skin and keeps my hair looking good. And then I use a, a silk, um, you know, one of those, it's not an eye mask because I hate that thing over my, uh, the elastic on the back of my head, but just an eye pillow. And I use that as well. So then I'm down for the night. That sounds lovely. I want to come over for a sleepover and do the evening and the yeah, morning I know. with it's, you. It sounds great. It's, it's really good. It's taken me years, years and years and years to to come home to myself because I spent so many years, 
you know, thinking that my life would be complete only when I found the right guy. And if you look at my astrologic chart, you can see it. My, my sole purpose was really to uh, get this completion inside myself and to be really happy here on my own. And I've, and I've done that. So now, of course, the guy can come because I don't need him to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal. Really big deal. Yeah. So we talked a lot about getting older, and my I love my new term. And something that I wanted to ask you, you know, what are the most important things that women in their 20s can do for their long-term health and longevity? Oh, well, in your 20s, it's an interesting time. So what you want to do in your 20s is get the education and the skill set that you need for the long haul. Develop discipline. There, There's nothing like uh, discipline, like just getting it done. My dream practice is a discipline. You know, it's so much easier to just get out of bed and not do that, but it's so enriching to do it. And then I transcribe them into a computer and, you know, and then I send them off and I go over them with the person. So develop some discipline. Do not, um, club hop and bed hop and drink your way through your twenties. Um, you know, cardiovascular disease starts in childhood. So don't do that. Try to get your rudder in the water a little earlier. <laughs> That's yeah. what I would say. And also remember, uh, for most women, things like PMS and all that don't start till the 30s. Why? Because you spent your 20s eating the wrong stuff, never exercising and drinking too much. So, you know, don't do that. I mean, life lasts a long time. And everything that you do in your 20s sets the stage for the next decade. Now, having said that, here's the paradox. It's never too late. I don't care if you're 70. It's never too late. But, you know, it's better if you get the discipline ironed in early. Yeah. This is something that is specific for you, but... I loved when you spoke about intuition and the science behind that from a physiological perspective, specifically with goosebumps. Could you talk about intuition and how to focus on it and utilize it more in your life and what's going on um, physically with intuition? Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. When someone does muscle testing, right? Yeah. What are they doing? They are accessing your innate what's called your innate nervous system. That is the part of your body. It's not connected to your brain. You can't access it through your intellect. It shows up on its own, but you can cultivate it. You cultivate it. And goosebumps are one of the best ways to cultivate it. When you hear something, when you go to a movie, when you see a book title, when someone calls you, when you pick an oracle card and you get goosebumps, bam, there's something there for you. Also, when I first saw a baby born and I was moved to tears, that's huge intuition. That was my innate soul saying, this is where your fulfillment lies. Go here. Don't talk yourself out of this. So anything that moves you to tears, anything that gives you goosebumps, you cannot intellectualize your way out of it. That's a sign. 
Then there are other ways to do intuition, of course. Um, I, I like uh, license plates. You know, many times a license plate will be exactly what you need to see. I was once all grumpy and I was on my way into a tango lesson and should I go and blah, 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 blah. And the license plate in front of me said fun, F-U-N. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, right, I'm dancing for fun. I instantly, um, you know, changed my mind. Songs that come on the radio, you turn on the radio in your car. Um, many, many people, you know, feel like the song on the radio is their oracle because it's exactly the right thing that happens. So you pay attention. Animals um, that you see out in the wild or crossing your path, a fox or anything, every animal, you know, other than let's say a pigeon in New York City, is an oracle for you. Look it up. Google the, the spiritual meaning or the animals in dreams. Uh, it's always so meaningful. Begin to have your life led in that way, not what the culture tells you you should do. When you are following that innate intuition, you are led to a life that's more fulfilling than you could ever dream. I never intended to be a doctor, ever. I never expected to practice, ever. I just followed what moved me to tears. Mm, I love that. Thanks for sharing all of that. So I wrote this book for Hay House about journaling, and I think writing is really important for figuring out who I am and getting to know myself better. Is writing or journaling something that is important to you? Have you ever journaled? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, when I was pregnant with Kate, so we know that was a while back, I got a little postcard up in labor and delivery at Maine Medical Center, and it was about proprioceptive writing taught by Linda Trichter Metcalf. And I was having real trouble writing anything scientific. I just, I just didn't seem to be able to write anything. And so I called Linda. She was living in Rockport, Maine at the time. And she said, yes, I can help you. She had started uh, this writing practice at NYU uh, in the Women's Studies program. And proprioceptive writing, her book is called Writing the Mind Alive. It uses intuition, the intellect, and the imagination simultaneously, and thus began a seven-year process of proprioceptive writing. You light a candle, you play Baroque music, or, or ragas, Indian ragas, and then you take three deep breaths and you come up writing. And I worked back and forth with Toby and Linda for about seven years, and that is how I found my writer's voice. As Linda said, there are no tourists in the mind. And when I would come up with a question, I would ask the proprioceptive question, what do I mean by? I spent two years on worthy. The reason is the original sin of being born female is not redeemable by works. But that is changing. Mm. So yes, indeed, a, a writing practice absolutely changed my life absolutely is journaling still something that you do you bet i do i keep journals regularly i like to keep the uh, new moons and the full moons and then i listen to ann ortley's weekly astrologic weather and then i learn how really magical the universe is because she'll say things like the new moon in cancer which was in uh you know july of 2015 or whenever it was 
She said, just look back on what you were doing then because it comes to the fullness of fruition now. Okay, so I did that. I looked back. The new moon in Cancer was when I talked to Hay House about the current book, Making Life Easy. What was the full moon in Cancer? The night of my book launch in New York City, December 13th, 2016. So I have journals going back into the 70s, and they're all organized by year in file drawers. So I can see the big themes and trajectories of my life. And boy, does that make the magic real. Cool. So this new book, Making Life Easy, hasn't been out for very long. And it's a bit of a departure from your other books. How are you feeling about it being out in the world, what has the response been, and, and what was the process of writing this book like for you compared to the other books? How did it feel for you? Oh, this was the easiest book I ever wrote because I decided not to have footnotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just decided, you know, this was uh, just something that I wanted to, I wanted people to know how I've always lived, what I've always believed in, and what makes my life easy, because I know that I'm not a victim of anything. I would like to change the subtitle, because the subtitle is, you know, a simple guide to a divinely inspired life. But I want people to know this is also the root of your physical health, mm. that you're connected to the stars, to the moon, to the universe, to the goosebumps, to the license plates. It all has to do with your physical health. And people tend to uh, divorce their physical health from the rest of their lives and that does not help them and that will make your life hard. Mm. So this book was was pure pleasure. Mm, I love that so much. So my book that I wrote with Hay House is called Let It Out, A Journey Through Journaling and this podcast is also called Let It Out. So when I offer that to you to let it out, what is it that you still want to let out in your life or even on this podcast, anything I you know, you wish I would have asked you or that you want to share with everyone? What do you still want to let out? I want to let out my inner indigenous drumming, dancing wildly, sexy woman. Mm. I love (laughs) that. (laughs) Cool. That's what I'm going to be doing. Yes. Very cool. Well, did you have fun? Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, you were great. First of all, let me congratulate you. You have totally done your homework, oh. and I appreciate that. You got some, you got some intellectual rigor here, and I oh. like that. And thank you, you so you've, much. You've, yeah, you've read my stuff, and and your work with journaling. If people just knew, you know, when you hold that pen and when you're writing, you're accessing a pinpoint part of yourself that uh, nothing else nothing else gets to and you don't know it until you've written it down that's just the truth which you know yeah yeah it really really people say oh I should write a book and it's like yeah well when you do that you're really gonna know what you think yeah yeah (laughs) I I say that in the book that I don't know what I'm thinking or feeling unless I'm writing so that's that's right that's right and I I get it so I know yeah bless your work Mm. it's needed Thank you so, so much. I admire you so much. And this was such a delight having you on the podcast and getting to chat with you and taking up so much of your evening. So thank you for being here. And I hope to stay in touch and be friends forever. Thank you. All right. 
That was my conversation with Dr. Northrup. I like her a whole lot. Check out her books. Check out my episode with Kate, her daughter. And check out today's sponsors like FreshBooks.com. We know FreshBooks. We love FreshBooks. You can invoice your clients and look professional if you have a small business or a large business or whatever size business you have. You can also stay on top of your finances, which creates more abundance. If you focus on what you have and are grateful for what you have, it makes room for more to come as well. So with taxes coming up and tracking your business expenses, FreshBooks is really awesome and I love it. It makes payments simple and easy. You can take credit card payments. It's great. I love it. Get a free 30-day unrestricted trial by going to freshbooks.com slash let it out and entering the code let it out in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash let it out and entering the code let it out in the how did you hear about us section. All right. Also, after you organize your finances, you'll probably want to move your body. And if you do, you might not want to even leave your house. And you don't have to. You can just use Aptiv.com. It's an app. It's amazing. And you can try it for free for 30 days by using the code Let It Out. It's amazing. Aptiv.com. There are so many audio classes, including interval training, strength training, indoor cycling, elliptical, yoga, 150 new classes are added every single month. You guys, that is so many classes. There are already 1,000 fitness audio classes, and it's not that annoying music. It's really good music, and you can get a playlist, and it's amazing. I might say amazing too much, but you know what? Aptiv deserves that adjective because it is that good of an app, and I really love it. So go to aptiv.com and use the code let it out to try it for 30 days. Okay, if you guys are still listening to my ramblings right now, pat yourself on the back and then tweet at me the emoji for this week's episode, which is, drumroll please, the lightning bolt. I really enjoy that emoji. I like it a lot. I don't really use it when I'm talking about weather. I just use it in all situations. Here are a few situations that I think are suitable to use the lightning bolt. You could talk about how much you enjoyed your brunch and just pop one of those, boom, lightning bolt. My brunch was that good that it was like a jolt of positive emotion and food into my body in every single bite. Lightning bolt, boom. You could use it and be like, I'm on my way. Lightning bolt, boom. You could use it and say, I love you. Lightning bolt, boom. Why not? Why not use the lightning bolt? That's that's how much I enjoy that emoji. My point is you can use it in any situation, but the situation you're using it in now is to let me know that you're still listening. I love you guys. I will talk to you next week on Wednesday. As always, you can tweet at me. I'm at Katie Dalebot. I'm on Instagram, at Katie Dalebot. Let's be friends on Facebook as well, at Katie Dalebot. I love you. I will see you with your lightning bolt emoji and anything else you want to share with me. Questions, concerns, comments, feedback. I bruise like a peach, but I'll take your negative comments too. You know, that will help me grow as a person. I love that. And I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Love you. Bye.